0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. And as you do, I will begin with a confession. I have recently found myself jealous of my three-month-old son for many reasons But primarily, recently I found myself jealous of his ability to nap anywhere at any time. Regardless, you've witnessed this in babies, right? Regardless of what's going on around them. So the other night, uh, Holly and I were in the kitchen working on dinner and she had Solomon like strapped to her in a, a wrap. It was hot in there because we were cooking so everybody's sweating. The other four children were in the kitchen too because obviously there's nowhere else in the house to play. Uh, and they are all playing at concert decibel level because that's what you do when you're indoors, right? And so that's going on. Pots and pans are being banged around. Holly and I are trying to have a conversation above the din of it all. And Solomon's is just... <laughs> like just drooling. And I found myself in that situation going like, what could possibly wake this kid up? And honestly... After our journey through most of Esther 2, last week, I found myself asking the same question about Mordecai and Esther. What could possibly wake them up? I mean, they have compromised and complied with with the pagan culture of Persia, to the extent they look like perfect citizens. Everyone thinks they're Persians. I mean, we've even seen Esther elevated to the point that she's queen of all of Persia. She looks like the perfect Persian. And Mordecai himself, we're going to see even more this week, he is a government worker himself. Like, he's had to compromise everybody possible piece of his Jewish identity. And he's taught Esther to do the same. We're reminded that at the beginning of our passage for this week. Look at Esther chapter 2 and verse 20. Esther, she's queen now, and she had not made known her kindred or her people, so she hadn't made known that she's related to Mordecai. She hadn't made known that she's a Jew. Why? As Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Mordecai's compromised and Esther's compliant. What could possibly wake them up from this life of pretending like they are Persian? What 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 could shake them and wake them to their identity as the people of God? What could shake us and wake us to our identity as the people of God, His church? Are we not like Esther and Mordecai all too often? I know that I am. Are we not like my son Solomon? We are strapped into the the heat of our Persia-like culture, surrounded by all the noise, and it's become such a normal thing. None of it seems to wake us up from our spiritual slumber. This is why we need Esther's chapter 3 and 4. Mordecai and Esther are about to wake up. They're about to transform, and and we need to see what it is that's going to awaken them in hopes that it will also awaken us. So for the rest of this morning, we're going to look at the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. Specifically, we're going to look at Mordecai. We're going to get to Esther again next week, but this morning, I think that we are going to see three things that awaken Mordecai three things that should awaken us from our compromise, awaken us to our identity as the people of God in Christ. So let's see these three things together. Beginning in Esther chapter 2, verse 21. In those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Hit pause right there for just a second. In those days, what days? Well, in the days in which Esther was Queen. In fact, if you go down to chapter three and verse seven, you'll learn that she's been queen for nearly five years at this point. When you lay out the timeline, a lot of time passes in Esther, and it doesn't. If you're careful, you're going to think that this whole book occurs over a long weekend, like it doesn't. She's been queen for probably about five years. Mordecai's checked on her as often as he could, and he's able to do that because we learn he sits at the king's gate. This is not a gate like in your backyard. The king's gate is a 12,000 square foot building. It's called a gate because you've got to pass through it to get into the palace complex. But it houses a lot of other things. It houses tons of, of rooms in which civil things are executed, in which uh, legal matters are disputed, in which all of that kind of business takes place. Like, like think of it almost like a city hall or, or a courthouse. And this is where Mordecai sits. In other words, this is where he works day after day. He is in the very belly of the beast that is Persia. And and no matter how much crazy pagan culture he's surrounded by, nothing seems to awaken him to his identity as a part of the people of God. He keeps that suppressed he keeps it hidden. He's compromised in all the pagan culture that surrounds him. That's normal. Let's keep reading about the kind of things that happened around him that were normal, that didn't wake him up at all. So continue on with verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, they became angry. And sought to lay hands on King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, or you say it in Hebrew, Ahasuerus, which sounds in Hebrew like King Headache. And he will continue to be a headache of a king this week. So, he's a headache of a king to two of his eunuchs who guard him. They set out to kill him. Verse 22, this plot, it came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai, so he gets credit. And When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. Many of you are going to have a footnote in your Bible, and it's going to say that that Hebrew word for gallows can also be translated as beam or wooden stake. That's a better translation. Don't think old Western with like a gallows and somebody getting hung. No, this is impalement. That's what the Persians practice. So every time you read hanging and gallows, we are talking about brutal impalement For the purpose of public display so both of these gentlemen are impaled the whole thing we're told was recorded in the book of the chronicles in the presence of the king that'll be important later on not today later on in our series so mordecai normal day at work learns of a plot to assassinate xerxes this is not surprising it's normal I mean, Xerxes is not exactly a well-beloved king. This is a guy who beheads his engineers when their bridges fail. This is a guy who beheads his his generals or impales them when they lose a a battle. This is a guy who we know sleeps around with the wives of his officers. Seriously, nine years from this moment in Esther 2, he's only got nine years left to rule because nine years from this moment, Another plot will be hatched by another one, the captain of his bodyguards, who will succeed in killing him in his own bedroom. Why? Because he was sleeping around with the wives of his officers. This is the kind of man we're dealing with, but serving this kind of man is not enough to awaken Mordecai. No, he hears about this plot and he takes action as a a faithful Persian citizen. He reports it to the queen, to Esther. She reports it to Xerxes, who has the conspirators impaled. Conspiracies, pagan kings, impalement, corruption, blood killing, Like, like this is the noise of the world swirling around Mordecai. And he's so compromised that all of it's normal. He's been surrounded by this for a long time. As a a government official, Mordecai would have been present at the party we saw in chapter 1. Do you remember that party where Xerxes puts all of his wealth on display and the entire empire lusts after it? This is the kind of money and materialism. This is the kind of life that we all aspire to. Mordecai would have been there. Not enough to awaken him. That's normal. He wasn't just present for that in chapter 1. He was present for for Persia's sexual exploits in chapter 2. Xerxes hatches a plan along with his young men to to take many of the young women throughout the empire so he could use them all until he found the one he liked and settle on her as a new queen. Mordecai even let them take Esther because this was normal. The money and materialism of chapter 1, normal. The sexual exploitation of chapter 2, Normal, and even now we find him sitting, Mordecai sitting in the king's gate day after day, unfazed by the corrupt Persian politics surrounding him because it's all normal. Money, sex, power. And he fits in and serves as a loyal Persian. Like if this is... What could possibly wake him up what could possibly wake us up i mean how how much of our own culture is identical to that of persia it's easy for us to step back and to judge and be like ah their culture was horrible ours isn't how how much is our if we, if we look just a little bit how, how much is our culture actually identical to that of Persia? How much is our culture antithetical to our identity as the people of God? I mean, are we not surrounded by the noise of rampant materialism like we saw in Esther chapter 1? Are we not constantly bombarded with the message that life is about the acquisition of things, that things will satisfy Oh, how often do I unquestioningly, unquestioningly participate in that? Because, because it's normal. are we not surrounded by the noise of a sexually exploitive culture, a pornographic culture? I mean, like, we can look at like Esther chapter 2 and we can pretend to be offended by the way that Persia treats women. but we're just as exploitive we've just learned to be more subtle about it we've privatized our exploits we've taken them off of the public streets and we've put them on private screens and in a pornified culture where sex has been robbed of its real meaning we start buying into the new meanings, the, the, the lies that our culture fills sexuality with. The chief lie of our culture about sexuality being that it, your sexuality, is the heart of your identity and who you are. We believe that because it's been made normal. Are we not surrounded by the noise of power and our political power? In our culture, we we, we live in a culture that is so politically polarized, so filled with outrage and hateful rhetoric because everyone believes that their party, their politician, will bring salvation and usher in a new kingdom. Shades, that's a false gospel. And so many Christians believe it and put their faith in it because it's normal. And we sit at our own king's gate day by day in the belly of the beast surrounded by a secular culture of money, sex, and power. And it's all normal. I find all too often it's normal to me. I, I end up just fitting in like a citizen of the here and now. What, and I ask myself, Esther has not been kind to my heart, people. I ask myself, like, what could wake me up to my identity as a citizen of a kingdom that's coming? What could wake us up? Three things. First, Persia doesn't deliver on what it promises. Persia doesn't deliver on what it promises. Look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things... King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. After these things, what things? After what things? After Mordecai discovered the plot on Xerxes' life, after Xerxes was told in verse 22, you've been saved by Mordecai. That was made explicit. Mordecai discovered the plot. Mordecai saved you. Verse 23 tells us that was written down. Mordecai saved you. After those things, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Like the author means for that to shock you. Commentators disagree about all sorts of things when it comes to Esther. I've never seen so many various theories and disagreements, but they're all in agreement about this. Like This name drop is meant to shock us. What do we expect the text to say? Who do we expect is about to be promoted? Hey, Mordecai discovered a plot. Mordecai saved the king. It's written down. Mordecai saved the king. The king promoted Mordecai. Thank you, Kathy. That's what, that's what we expect. And if we expect that to be the case... The original readers of this book would have expected it all the more because in Persian culture, acts of loyalty like Mordecai's were typically immediately rewarded with things like promotions. And as a result, I believe, you're going to hear me use those words a lot this morning I believe, I think. I'm doing my best not to read my own theories into the text. I have reasons for these things that I think that are rooted in the text. Hopefully I'll show you most of them as we go along. But I believe that we are seeing the first thing that will begin to awaken Mordecai from his spiritual slumber. Persia doesn't deliver what it promises, Mordecai. Mordecai's given his whole life to Persia. We've seen that. He's faithfully served them. Even faithfully saved Xerxes. And he's seen the kind of life that's promised to those who serve Xerxes. Remember, he saw it in chapter 1. But does he get it? No. When the time comes for him to reach the top, he's passed over. You ever been passed over? Like, Like, you ever worked so hard to achieve something only to see the reward go to someone else? Ever felt the painful realization that Persia doesn't deliver on what it promises? Like you can be passed over like Mordecai and never achieve what it is that you have been reaching for. Or or another way to discover that Persia cannot deliver on what it promises is to actually be promoted, to get promoted like Haman. Haman is going to get nearly everything he has ever wanted, and we are going to see him unravel over the course of this book. We're going to see it in just the next couple of verses, how quickly his promotion doesn't satisfy. Whether you're passed over or whether you get the promotion, the lie that Persia can satisfy is eventually exposed. It's like it's like a greyhound race. You ever, you ever watched greyhound dogs race? You know, they get them to run because they have this little robot rabbit on a... On a tr- Nobody's ever seen it. Have you at least seen the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the greyhounds where they chase the robotic rabbit? Trust me, this is what they do, okay? They chase a robotic rabbit. And for this greyhound dog, he will either never catch that thing He will spend his life chasing it, never getting what it is that he wants. Or worse, he will get it, and he will be sorely disappointed that it's not the juicy meal he imagines. It is stuffed with fluff that cannot satisfy his hunger. Shades, don't buy into the lies of Persia. It cannot deliver what it promises. With money, with sex, with power. Don't, don't buy into the lie that you can be satisfied with money, the lie of materialism. It can't deliver on what it promises, no matter how much stuff you acquire. Xerxes, like wealth, will still leave you wanting. College students, we have a lot of college students present. I want to stress this lie is particularly dangerous for you right now. It's dangerous for all of us, but the lie of materialism is particularly dangerous for you right now. It can set the course for the next 40 to 50 years of your life. And you can get to the end of it and catch that rabbit and find it to be oh so empty. You're going to school to get a degree, to get a good job, to make good money, to have a good life. That's not the good life. That is a lie. No job will satisfy the desires of your heart. No money will satisfy the desires of your heart. Materialism in any form doesn't satisfy. It's a lie. Persia cannot deliver on what it's promising. That's not just true about money, that's true about sex as well. Shades don't bind to the lie of our pornographic culture, the lie that sex satisfies, like digital or otherwise. When you take sex and you strip it of its meaning and you take it out of the context of marriage for which it was designed, then at that point sex only serves as a temporary high that can't satisfy. It will actually ultimately drain you of life. This thing that was literally meant to be life-giving will take life from you. Singles, this is especially a dangerous lie for you in this phase of your life. We have a lot of singles here at Shades. Don't, don't buy into the lie that sexual identity satisfies. The, the lie that, that the core of who you are is your Sexuality. So you will never be satisfied or happy unless you are able to express it and act on it however you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. It's a lie. Jesus Christ is the happiest human being that ever walked the face of this planet. He never had sex, died a virgin, still is one. Like, don't buy the lie that sexual expression satisfies. Or even that finding a spouse satisfies. That that is not the lie that this book is telling you. This book does not preach to you that finding a spouse is the goal that will satisfy you. It teaches you that if you find a spouse, we pray that they are a pointer to the only one who can satisfy. Christ. And Him alone. Persia can't deliver on what it promises, not with money, not with sex, not with power. Not even politics, which claim to be oh so powerful. Don't, don't buy into the lie that a political party or a politician can be a savior. Shades, Persia can't deliver on what it promises. And when it doesn't, maybe you've found yourself where you have, you've realized that, and if not, I hope and pray that by looking at what's going on with Mordecai, we're encountering this truth right now. And just like it will awaken him, I pray that it will awaken us. When we discover that Persia cannot deliver on its promises, that just might begin to wake us up from our spiritual slumber. I think Mordecai was just as shocked as we are that he wasn't promoted i think we see evidence of that in the text i think that he began to question everything he'd ever believed about persia and not just because persia had failed to deliver on what it promised but secondly second thing we need to see in order to be awoken persia promotes what is poisonous he didn't just see that it couldn't deliver on its promises. He saw that Persia actually promotes, put forward, exemplifies what is poisonous. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 3. After these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. We're told that Haman is an Agagite. Why? Like this isn't normal throughout the book of Esther. Every single character that's introduced, we're not given their lineage or their ethnicity. or We're actually only really given it with two characters. Mordecai and Haman, these two characters that are about to come into conflict. Why? It's because there is a long history here. All right, if you go all the way back The book of Exodus, specifically to Exodus chapter 17, if you remember in the book of Exodus, the Jewish people, they'd been slaves for over 400 years in the land of Egypt. God brought them out. He delivered them through a leader named Moses. And as they go out, the people are attacked. And they are attacked by a specific... The first people to ever attack the Jews as they leave Egypt is a specific people group, the Amalekites, Scripture always presents the Amalekites to us as a bloodthirsty people whose only God seems to be power itself. History bears that out. Jewish scholar Yoram Hazani says that these were a people. The Amalekites had no moral boundaries, no limits on their desire to control all. We see an example of that in how they attacked Israel. You can read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. They attacked them from behind, from the rear, to pick off all the stragglers and the weak first. Like, like these are a malicious people. And as a result of this attack against Israel, God makes a promise to his people. He promises them that the day would come when he would use them to defeat the Amalekites completely wipe them out. Fast forward a little bit. That day was supposed to come under Israel's first king. Israel's first king was Saul. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Benjamite. And in 1 Samuel 15, God gives him instructions. I want you to go up against the Amalekites and their king, Agag. And I want you to wipe them out, Saul. And Saul does. Mostly. Kind of keeps alive the best of their animals, keeps alive the best of their people, you know, so they can do the work of God in serving his people. And as a result of his disobedience, God strips the kingdom away from Saul. And as a result of that disobedience, the Amalekites survive. And here in Esther 3, we meet Haman, the Agagite, an Amalekite, descended from the line of King Agag himself. Of course, Mordecai, who was introduced to us as a Benjamite from the same tribe as that of King Saul, who was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites. Of course, Mordecai, the Benjamite, is going to take note that this is the kind of person Persia promotes, a power-worshipping Agagite. That term Agagite it becomes a pejorative term for the Jews where they apply it to people who that's not even their ethnicity they just use that word to mean enemy of the Jews Like we're going to see that happen in this book Like all you got to do is look at Esther 3:10, Esther 8:1, 8:3, 8:5, 9:10, 9:24 and you will find the term Agagite becomes synonymous with enemy of God's people So right here, we've got this power-hungry Agagite who has no limits on his desire to control all. That's going to become obvious very quickly. He's got no moral constraints, no mercy. He's poisonous, and he will poison the king and all of Persia. This is what Persia promotes. I actually think that this is what got him promoted in the first place. The fact that he has no moral constraints, no limitations, no mercy. I think that because of verse 1 in Esther chapter 3. It connects, that first phrase, after these things, connects the promotion of Haman with the preceding events. The attempted um, assassination of Xerxes. It's after those specific events that Haman is Promoted. Likely they are connected. Likely Xerxes is promoting Haman to protect him from future threats of the same nature. I think that for more reasons than just the phrase after these things. If you go and you look at the book of Esther as a whole, in Esther's chapter one and two, anytime Xerxes needs to make decisions, he's surrounded by a council, surrounded by some young men. He's got people who are pouring into him, weighing in on the decisions that he's making after the promotion of Haman, not anymore. The only person that has his ear is Haman alone. Because Xerxes needed a right-hand man who is brutal enough to keep everybody else in line. He did not trust anybody anymore. There was a threat on his life from the inside. I don't trust anybody. I need an enforcer at my right hand to keep everybody in line. That right-hand man is Haman, and we will see Haman poison Xerxes in all of Persia. Persia promotes what's poisonous have we not already talked about how we see this same thing in our own culture like in the same way that we see it in persia's culture do we not see our culture promoting materialism sexual exploitation power political or otherwise does our culture not promote people hold them forth as those who embody the ideal does not promote those people to us like like they embody what we should all try to achieve. You can see this is true today. Go to the grocery store. When you go through the grocery store, check out aisle. Check out the magazines. What's being promoted as the ideal? As the life for which we should all aim and achieve? Is it not materialism, sexuality, power, money sex power like like the magazines are filled with ads and pictures of people who embody these ideals shades it's poisonous it'll shape your heart and what your heart wants it's, it's poison that's why these magazines are set right next to the junk food it's all junk food so here's food that'll poison your body here's magazines that'll poison your brain and your heart and your soul Let's put all the poisonous stuff right here by the cash register. Persia promotes what's poisonous. And this should serve to wake up the people of God. The promotion of someone who's poisonous is Haman. That's helping, I believe it's helping to wake Mordecai up from his spiritual slumber. It's getting him to rise to his feet. That's exactly what we see in Esther chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. Look at it with me. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? This doesn't make sense. He just saved the life of the king. Why is he now disobeying him? Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Does that not blow your mind? Like this is a man who has spent his entire life hiding who he was. Why now? Why why this situation? He, he has spent his whole life not letting people know his ethnic heritage, his religious heritage. Something has awoken in this man. Like something that will not allow him to bow down to Haman day after day. Something has awoken in Mordecai and has him on his feet. What is it? I mean, yes, he's seen Persia doesn't deliver on what it promises. Yes, he's seen that Persia promotes what's poisonous, but none of that is going to give him the strength to stand. What does? I believe, and I think we're going to see it in the text, I believe that God has faithfully reminded Mordecai of his faithful promises. God has faithfully reminded Mordecai of his faithful promises. This is the the third and the final thing we need to see, the thing that, that wakes us up from our spiritual lethargy. Number three, God faithfully reminds us of his faithful promises. God faithfully reminds us of his faithful promises. I believe that's what's going on with Mordecai. God's faithfully reminded him of his faithful promises for when everybody else Around Mordecai bows down to Haman the Agagite. I believe that Mordecai the Benjamite remembers remembers how God had promised His people victory over the Amalekites. So Mordecai stands on the promise of God. He may have mixed motives here for sure, but I believe one of them is that he is standing on the promise. I I don't bow to an Agagite. I have a promise from God. I'm a part of his people. This is waking him up to his identity so he's not con- afraid to confess it now. I'm not going to bow to him. Why? You want to press me day after day? It's because I'm a Jew. I'm a part of God's people. I won't bow to an ego. He stands on the promise of God even amidst all the power of Persia. I believe that is what Mordecai is doing Because of the central question of the entire book of Esther. The central question of this entire book is, will God be faithful to his promises that he's made to his people? Even when they've been faithless in Persia. That's the question the whole book is asking. His People have compromised, they've complied, they're living like pagans in the midst of a pagan culture. Will God still be faithful to them when they come under threat? That's the question. Will God be faithful to the promises of His people even when they have been faithless in the midst of of Persia? That's the question that the rest of this chapter asks. Because Mordecai's actions don't go unnoticed. Word gets to Haman. Mordecai won't bow because he is a Jew and Haman is filled with fury is this whole situation starting to sound familiar like perhaps in chapter one we saw a certain king who demanded respect from a certain queen and because he didn't get it he was filled with fury to the point that he issued a decree throughout the entire empire concerning all of the women now haman demands respect and he doesn't get it from one jew So he's filled with fury to the point that he issues a decree throughout the entire empire concerning all the Jews. Chapter 1 and what we're experiencing here in chapter 3 are set next to each other as parallels to beg the question, will the result be the same? Vashti and the entire empire are defeated by Persia. Will the result be the same for Mordecai and the people of God? It's asking the question, will God be faithful to his promises, to his people, when they're faithless in the midst of Persia? That's why I think this is what's going on with Mordecai. He's standing on the promises of God. I think that's going to unfold rather explicitly as we go on and see what else he does for the rest of the book. But I think right here in chapter 3 we get this small picture of what's happening with Mordecai and then it gets blown up writ large of what's happening with the entire people of God. I think they're parallels. I think the same thing happening with Mordecai is the same thing happening with all of God's people. What happens with all of God's people? Haman infuriated. Little pride has big fury. Little men have big fury. And so not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews have to pay. He wants them all dead. Genocide is his answer. There are no limits on this Agagite's desire to control all the people of Persia. So he takes action. Look at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots. That's the term we are most familiar with in scripture, but poor, it means lots. They cast him before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month. That doesn't mean that he had lots cast in front of him for an extended period of time. They're casting lots to figure out a day, and then they're casting lots to figure out a month. Here's what happens. The 12th month, which is the month of Adar, that's the month that gets chosen. He casts poor, he casts lots, and what he's doing is he's trying to divine the the right time to carry out his genocidal plan and fate as it were determines that it should happen in 11 months so armed with this information Haman goes to Xerxes in verses 8 and 9 we don't have time to read it all I'll summarize some of it for you He goes to Xerxes in verses 8 and 9, and he poisons the king's mind and heart with poisonous words. Haman doesn't even tell Xerxes who the people group is that he wants to destroy. He just says, you know, there's a certain people. They're a problem. He's preying on Xerxes' paranoia. Xerxes is scared to death that people within his own empire are going to rise up and overthrow him. So so Haman preys on that. He tells them, he's like, there's a certain people, and they stick out in Persia. They don't follow our laws. They follow their own half-truths. And so it's not in your best interest, Xerxes, to tolerate them. How about this? I got an idea. How about I pay you 10,000 talents worth of silver? That's 300 tons. That's two-thirds of what Persia takes in in taxes in a year. How about I pay you two-thirds of your gross revenue In exchange, you let me kill them all. Now this king whose treasury is empty due to a disastrous war with Greece, this king who's paranoid about being overthrown, do you think he even hesitates? No. He gives Haman his signet ring that's the power to issue decrees in the name of the king, decrees that cannot be revoked, He says, do with them what you want. And Haman does. Verse 12 says that he takes action on the 13th day of the first month. Nisan, that's important. The 13th day of the first month month. That's the day he takes action, and this is what he does. Look at verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, and annihilate. means the guy want there to be any room for questioning what he wants done. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That's the day that the poor, the, the lots, determine. And bonus... You get to plunder their goods. Verse 15 says that the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. Literally to party. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Decree goes out. In 11 months, all the citizens of Persia are supposed to rise up, annihilate the Jews among you, and to motivate them, he says you can plunder, you can take anything that they possess. Xerxes and Haman are quite proud of themselves, so proud they throw a party. The whole situation, Shades, is very, very eerie. It's eerie in ways that it is similar to other scenes of more recent history. I don't know how familiar you are with the history of World War II and the Wansi Conference, but that's the place where Nazi leadership decided upon the answer to the final question, the final solution to the quote-unquote Jewish problem. The Nazis believed that the Jews throughout Europe who followed their own laws, they didn't assimilate well into European culture. Sounding familiar? They decided that they were to be blamed for for all of Europe's problems, and so a decision was made to annihilate them. That decision at the 1C conference took less time than the cocktail hour that followed. Even today... We live in cultures, we're in denial if we don't think so. We live in cultures still filled with this kind of hate. Do we not mourn with the Jewish community of Pittsburgh? Or the assassination of 11 of their synagogue members just a few weeks ago? That's just one situation. Like, Sadly, if we zoom out beyond our own borders to look at the globe, there are countless still killed because of race and because of religious belief. Over 100,000 of our own brothers and sisters, Christians, over 100,000 are martyred each year. What, what are we to do in such a world? What is the church, what is the people of God to do? In Esther chapter 3, what were the people of God to do in such a world? As Haman and Xerxes party, the people are thrown into confusion. That's what I feel. And I'm sure that right here, nobody was more confused than the Jews themselves. Because, remember, remember how we were told the exact date that this decree went out? Thirteenth day of the first month? month of Nisan, do you know what day that is on the Jewish calendar? That's the day before Passover. That's Passover Eve. Author doesn't tell us that on purpose. The author doesn't mention anything religious on purpose, although we're going to see from this point on out, there's a lot that is religious in this book, as we've already seen the presence of God, even though he hasn't been mentioned. The author's doing it on purpose because he's asking us, can you see God? Even when he's not mentioned, when he feels, can you see him here? He doesn't mention that, but he doesn't mention Passover explicitly, but he does mention the date explicitly. He wants us to know. This decree is going out on Passover Eve. Passover celebrates the saving of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. God delivering his people from death itself in a foreign land. The day before that feast, the day before you celebrate your salvation from death in a foreign land is the day you receive the news you're going to die in a foreign land. Like, how could your heart not be confused? What, what, what are they to do? Up to this point, Persia has always been relatively peaceful towards them, but they can see clearly Persia doesn't deliver on the peace that it's promised. No, they can see quite clearly that Persia promotes what is poisonous. So what are they to do? Wake up. They're to wake up and stand up and stand upon the promises of God. For even in this moment, shades, God is faithfully reminding them of His faithful promises. That's what Passover is. Like right on the heels of them receiving this threat, God is at work faithfully reminding His people of His faithfulness. Passover is an annual reminder of God's faithfulness to keep His promises. He saved His people out of Egypt, just like He promised He would. Will they now stand on His promises and believe that He can save them in the midst of Persia? Will they believe that their lives are in the hands of fate? in the rolling of poor, of lots? Or will they believe that their lives are in the hands of the sovereign God described in Proverbs 16 and verse 33? The lot, the poor, is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman can roll his lots all he wants. They're not in charge. Look at Passover. I've got a promise. Do you believe me? Will they stand on God's promises that He can save His people even in the midst of Persia? Will will Mordecai believe? We saw God faithfully reminding, I've I've promised I'm going to save you from the Agagites. I've promised, I'm, I'm reminding you all over the place of my faithfulness. Will Mordecai believe? Will the people believe? They've both seen what happens to people who don't obey the king's commands. Chapter one showed us that, right? Things didn't go well for Vashti or for all the women of Persia. Are things gonna turn out the same? Can can Mordecai believe that God will keep his promise to him and to all the Jews of Persia? Even though they have lived compromised lives, at this point, can they wake up and stand on the promises of God? Can we shake? Hear me, no matter how compromised you may or may not have lived your life up to this point, no matter how much you may or may not have bought into the lies of money and sex and power, can we wake up and stand on the promises of God even amidst a Persia-like culture? A culture that we know if we refuse it, it will reject us. Can we wake up and stand up in faith clinging to the promises that God has made to His people, His church? Promises like John 16 and verse 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will face Agagite's. You'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Can we wake up and stand on promises of God like that, knowing that every last one of His promises are guaranteed by our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed according to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, sacrificed to guarantee that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Him. Can we believe that God keeps His promises to His people? Even if you've been compromised, well, shades, like the prodigal son of Luke 15 who found himself compromised sitting in a pig pen, we can still wake up. He was brought to his senses. He woke up. He stood up. And we can come home to a father who runs to embrace us. Shades, Persia doesn't deliver on its promises. Let that wake you up. In fact, Persia promotes what's poisonous. Let that wake you up. And more than anything else, this morning, right now, right now through this word, in order to wake us up, our faithful God has been faithfully reminding us of his promises. May we stand on those promises, even in the midst of our own Persia. In the coming weeks, we're going to see exactly what it looks like to stand on the promises of our faithful God. Amen and amen.